Thank you, Joe, for that ministry and music. Our verse for this evening in our, as we continue our memorable verses series, is Proverbs 21.1. It says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Okay, and probably most of you are thinking, it's not a memorable verse. Okay, it's not a very popular verse. There's probably not too many who, is, who have made this their life verse. But this has been a, a, what I would say a memorable verse for me. Uh, I'd say at least over the last couple of years when I've read the book of Proverbs, this is a verse that has jumped out. I'm not quite sure why. I don't know if it was because I wasn't quite sure what it was saying or what. But every time I've read through the, the book of Proverbs uh, over the last couple of years, this verse has jumped out at me. It, it just has stuck out. Um, while I'm reading, I didn't put too, too much thought to its meaning, but it stuck out to me, and, and as I was thinking about the next verse that I would cover uh, in this series that us, us pastors are doing, I thought this would be a, a great one to do, and it really was a very re- rewarding study in, in my hope, and I, I believe that this evening, uh, this will be a verse that I think will intrigue you. The message might be surprising, uh, but the application is, is very, very uh, relieving. So our our verse is Proverbs 21, verse 1. And I think it's helpful as we begin this study to to ask the question, what is within the bounds of God's control? Okay, what what is within the bounds or or the the borders or what falls under, uh, we could say it, what falls under the, the sovereignty of God? And by the word sovereignty, I mean what falls under God's power and controlling influence? So what is within the bounds of God's control? What things, what events, what um, would we say falls within the bounds of God's control? And, And to ask it a little bit more specifically, what about when it comes to human beings, our choices and decisions, our feelings and emotions, our opinions and perspectives? Are those within the bounds of God's control or are they the exception? Okay, do events, situations, weather, um, even animals, do they fall under God's control? But when it comes to our choices, our decisions, our emotions, are they outside of it? That's what we're going to be considering uh, this evening in Proverbs 21, 1, and, and kind of to really boil down the, the subject or, or the topic that it's dealing with is Proverbs 21, 1 deals with God's control over the will and the, the desires of people. That is the subject or the topic that it's dealing with. And I want to just begin our study uh, by just going phrase by phrase, even word by word through this this verse and thinking about what it means. I want to help us fully understand this this verse right off uh, the bat. So first we'll consider who is being spoken about in relation to God's sovereignty. Proverbs 21.1 begins, The king's. The king's heart, and we'll get to the word heart in a moment, but I want, about, I want to think about um, who is being talked about, the subject that's being acted upon, and that is the king. The king in those days, back in, in Bible times, the king uh, would have been the one with total power. Okay? Over his kingdom, he would have had total power. He could say something, and it was law. No one could go against it. If anyone was viewed to have complete control and power, it was the king. And as we think about this verse, and and as I said, it talks about who is the subject being acted upon. 
Though the king is zeroed in on, I don't believe this verse is only applicable to kings or government officials. Maybe for us it would be the president. Um, I don't think that is the only person that is, is were to take as being acted upon in this verse. But I believe that the point in talking about the king is to show how great God's sovereignty is by taking the person who would have been viewed as sovereign and supreme in relation to God's sovereignty. So though the king is mentioned, I believe that ultimately all people are being spoken about. I believe this verse can be applied to every single human being about their, um, or about God's sovereignty or God's control in relation to them. So uh, it's talking about the king, and there's some great lessons that, that we get from that, but I don't think that's counting us out since we're not kings or other human beings. Second, we'll consider... What is it about our lives, or specifically the king in this verse, our lives that is said to be under God's control? It says in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart. So it's not just our lives in general that are being talked about that fall under the, the sovereignty of God, but a specific part, and I think a surprising part, is, is mentioned, and that is our hearts. And by hearts, it's not talking about our physical organ of a heart, but rather it's speaking of our will and our decisions. It's talking about our intentions, our views, our emotions, and our desires. So oftentimes when heart is used, it's talking about who we are, uh, the essence of who we are, things that we think, things that are in our mind, but also... Um, what we want to see happen, our views and our perspectives on things and our feelings and emotions are, are within this as well. So the heart is the thing within in us as human beings that leads us to action. The thing that leads us to say certain things, it is what causes us to feel the way we do and come to the conclusions and the choices that we make. This is the specific part tonight in Proverbs 21.1 that falls under the sovereignty of God. As we think about this word heart, it's a very personal part of our lives. Uh, it's, it's the part that we feel like we control. Okay? Our views on things, our, our desires, our emotions, we think they come from us. Okay? They come from within inside us. It's something we determine. But we find those things fall under God's control, God's sovereignty this evening. Third, we'll consider the illustration an, il an illustration is given of control. It says in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. So I want us to consider this illustration that is giving when it says, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. This stream of water is, is not talking about what might come to mind first, like a river or a creek, but rather uh, this word, this phrase, uh, uh, can be translated as an artificial water channel or a canal, okay? An irrigation system that, that farmers would use to be able to uh, water their, their crops. It was a mechanism to collect water that they could steer that water in certain directions to get to their crops so that they were watered, so that they were fed. These farmers would, would manipulate and control the water, rainwater or waters from other um, bodies of water, they would, they would manipulate and control this water by putting them in kind of like half shafts to get them to the crops so that they would have ample water. I think for us, 
maybe something that's more personal to you is either a hose that you might use in your yard or a sprinkler system. You may have even seen uh, sprinkler systems that farmers use. Uh, I think that communicates to us a little bit or it's something that we actually use. That is kind of the idea here. Using something for us to be, be a hose that we would connect to our, our house, uh, a water um, attachment to our house so that we could uh, feed or, or water our plants um, or if you have a garden. We connect the hose and it allows us to be able to start and stop the water. We're in control of how much water is coming out, but also we are in control of the direction that you're squirting um, that water onto your plants. When you use a hose or when you have a sprinkler system, you are completely in control of the use of water. You decide when it stops and starts. You decide where it will be sprayed. And the comparison and the use of this illustration in our verse is to say that just as a farmer is in control of and able to direct water to his crops, so too God is in control of and able to direct the hearts of men to carry out his purposes. Just as an irrigation system would, would guide and direct the water, so too, or the water to where the farmer wanted, what Proverbs 21.1 is saying is, so too God guides and he directs hearts to his intended plans and purposes. And if we just look back at the verse, or this phrase, it says, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Just this phrase in and of itself, in the hand of the Lord. When something's in your hand, it's in your control. You, you can do with it what you want. This phrase shows the grasp on, the hold on that God has on human hearts. Our hearts are in the hands of God. They are in his control just as much as this water is in a hose or a sprinkler system. That is the, the illustration. It's an illustration to show control. And then fourth, I want us to consider from our verse a statement of God's control. And it kind of continues on this illustration, um, but it just comes out very clear to state God's control. It says in Proverbs 21.1, the last phrase, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And then it says, he turns it wherever he will. So as I said, it, it kind of continues this illustration of a, a water channel or, or canal back then. For us, as I said, we can relate it to a hose or a sprinkler uh, system, and I, I believe it was made pretty clear in the illustration that it gets even clearer here to show that the human heart, our will, our desires, our emotions, our choices are ultimately in the control of God. As it says, God turns it wherever he will. It says he turns it wherever he will, meaning that God can direct, he can steer, he can stir a heart that God can cause our hearts to feel a certain way or decide on something. God has complete control over human hearts, is what Proverbs 21.1 is saying. No matter how much power someone has, as he starts with the king, who has total power, at least in the, the eyes of humans, no matter how much power we have, no matter how evil we are, no matter how arrogant or stubborn, no matter how in control this person seems, God is in control of them, is what our verse is saying. So this verse means that God could bring someone who we wouldn't expect to look upon us favored, favorably or positively to view us that way, to, to look with favor on us. This verse means that God could bring someone who we'd expect to view us with favor, 
to not view us with favor. It means that God could bring someone to make certain decisions. It means that God could cause someone to be scared or sad. It means that God could bring someone to promote us or demote us, to, to advance us or fire us, to dislike us or like us. That is all within this phrase and the specifics of what this verse is saying. Just trying to help us completely understand this verse as we move on, I'd like to give you a quote, and I think Matthew Henry says it well when he explains the verse this way. He says, God can change men's minds, can by a powerful, insensible operation under their spirits, turn them from that which they seemed most intent upon, and incline them to that which they seem most averse to. As the husband, the husbandman by canals and gutters turns the water through his ground as he pleases, which does not alter the nature of the water, nor put any force upon it, any more than God's providence does upon the native freedom of man's will, but directs the course of it to serve his own purpose." So I think Matthew Henry lays out and, and puts it in different words than I just have, but um, what this verse teaches then is that God's sovereignty over man goes far beyond just him being aware of what we do, okay, or even being in control of events or circumstances of our lives, but what this verse is saying is, is the thing that makes us who we are, the, the thing that's the most personal, and as I said, the thing we feel like we have the most control of in our life, God's in control of it. God is ultimately in control of our very hearts, is what this verse is saying. So this might be a new concept for you. As you, as you hear this, as I said, it, it might be surprising. Okay? It even, I think, is, and we're going to think about this later on in the message, it can be a hard thing for us to get our minds wrapped around. It might be shocking and even might be a bit scary to think of God being in control of your heart. So you might resist it and, and think, maybe Proverbs 21.1 doesn't mean this. Maybe it means something else. And as you wrestle with this, and, and we're going to move to some more scripture in a moment, but as you wrestle with this, I want to share a quote from Jerry Bridges in his book on the sovereignty of God called Trusting God. I'm going to quote him several more times as he, he deals with this subject and this verse very well in this book. But he brings up, I think, a very good point to show that this makes sense that God would have control of our hearts. Jerry Bridges says this, If God is not sovereign in the decisions and actions of other people as they affect us, then there is a whole major area of our lives where we cannot trust God, where we are left, so to speak, to fend for ourselves. So what he's saying is if this isn't true, okay, if God doesn't have control over our hearts, then there's a place where we are really at the mercy of and we're in the hands of other people when it comes to their hearts, their, their decisions, how they look at us. God couldn't help us when it came to them if he was not in control, if he wasn't sovereign over their hearts. He would just have to wait to see what they decide and then react. Okay, so not only does Proverbs 21, and, and we'll see soon the rest of Scripture, teach us this very truth, but as I said, we see it makes sense. It makes sense that this would be the case. So what I want to do now is I want to uh, look at Scripture, and I want to, want to show that it's not just Proverbs 21.1 that teaches this, but it is all over the Word of God. Okay, We find time and time again 
that God exercises his sovereignty over the hearts of humans to carry out his purposes. And we're going to see, and I'm going to try to show us that this is done in some different ways to different people, different types of people, but he also um, shows his control over a human heart in different ways. So the, the first example or set of examples I want us to think about, and they revolve around how God causes people to look positively on others. And I want us to look at several examples, and these are major characters in the Bible, so you'll, you'll know their stories pretty well. And the first is how he causes people to look positively on Daniel. On Daniel. Okay, the book of Daniel opens uh, in chapter 1, and it, it opens by clearly displaying the sovereignty of God, God's control over all things. And it gives us three different ways. And in the first way, um, and, and this is really triggered by the word gave, okay? We're going to see this in all three examples. I don't think I have that passage up there. And I'll just read a, a phrase of it. Daniel 1, 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Talking about the king of Babylon. Uh, he gave him. He's sovereign over kings to hand him over. Uh, and then we see a second way that God's sovereignty is showed in Daniel's life in giving him gifts and abilities. It says in Daniel 1.17, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God, God's sovereignty is clear in this chapter. It made the question we could ask is, do we get an instance of God's sovereignty over a heart, okay, like we're thinking about tonight. And I have for us Daniel chapter 1, and I'd like to, to read the whole account, verses 8 through 16, where we find this positively looking upon Daniel. Okay, it says this in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And then this is the key verse. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Then verse 10 goes on with the rest of the story. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are, at, who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then verse 13 says, Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they drank and gave them vegetables. Okay, so the chief of the eunuchs allowing Daniel to eat vegetables and water rather than what the king of Babylon had, had commanded and, and had for all of these young men that he had captured, it ultimately is attributed to God causing him to look at Daniel positively and favorably. Again, verse 9 says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Yes, Daniel, he had to explain his plan. He had to lay it out before the chief of the eunuchs. But it ultimately was the Lord's working in this chief of the eunuchs' views and his decisions. It says favor and compassion. Those are 
Those are heart things, okay? To look upon po someone positively, to, to show compassion to someone, that is something in your heart. When you think about, uh, when you think about the chief of the eunuchs, so I think putting it this way helps us. When, when you think about the chief of the eunuchs, he had no reason to do this, okay? Why would he change the diet just based off of this guy's request? He is, uh, Daniel and his friends, they're captured, they're, they're, um, they were part of a different people and now are part of the Babylonians. They're captured by them. This chief of the eunuchs, he has no reason to do this. And further, he even says, I fear, okay? He says that he fears for his life and that going against the king's order could cost him his life the natural and the expected outcome for Daniel to ask for this would be for the chief of the eunuchs to turn him down. So it wouldn't have been expected for uh, this to take place. But God miraculously overcomes his emotions and his perspectives, and he causes him to approve of what Daniel proposes. And we might ask, why did God do this? It's not told us definitively, but we see that it allows Daniel to, to not have to go against the king's orders to obey God. So he would have had to disobey the king to go with what God had commanded, but this allows him to be able to peacefully follow the word of God. This is just one example, but I want us to look at several others, and as I said, some more uh, characters in the Bible that we know well. The next is Joseph. God causes the keeper of the prison to look upon Joseph favorably so that he puts Joseph in charge of the prison. Start by reading for us Genesis 39, beginning at verse 21. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, and then here's the key phrase, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever, whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. And I'll pause there for a moment to, to ask the question, why would the prison keeper give a prisoner control of the other prisoners? Okay, it doesn't seem to make sense. Why would you put someone in charge who uh, was himself sitting in that prison and serving time. It, it doesn't make sense. And yet, as the end of verse 21 says, attributed to the Lord. The Lord overcame maybe the prison, the prison guards or the prison keeper's natural thoughts, and he gave Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And I won't read these verses, but these verses, they show why God worked this way. It shows God's purposes, and it was for him to ultimately be able to interact with the baker and the cupbearer, ultimately leading to his release uh, several years later. We have Esther. And in Esther, we have similar language, but if you know the, the book of Esther uh, well, God's name is never mentioned. Okay, so we don't specifically have God being uh, credited with this, but all over the book of Esther, many different places, even though God's name isn't mentioned, we can see that he very much was at work. And since this language mimics Daniel's and Joseph's, I think this can be attributed to the Lord as well with Esther. At Esther 5, verses 1 through 3, it says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, 
Here's a sim- similar, similar language to Daniel and Joseph. She won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. So Esther's yet another uh, instance where someone in authority, okay, and here again it's a king, shows favor to her and the Lord is behind it. And I'd like to just give us one more example in this, this first set. And it's, give us this one because it's not dealing with a ruler or an authority. It's just a normal, normal, ordinary people. And that is with the Egyptians on the people of Israel. Exodus 12, verses 35 through 36 say, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And then verse 36 says, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So we see God working in the hearts of the Egyptians as the people of Israel were leaving after the firstborn child uh, had had been killed. Great plagues had been experienced by the Egyptians. Again, it doesn't seem to make sense. And that is because it was God at work in their hearts to bring them to be willing to do such a thing. So the first thing that we see as we think about God's control over hearts is that God can cause someone to look favorably or positively towards us, someone that doesn't normally or someone that we wouldn't expect. Maybe you know they haven't liked you in the past. God can overcome that. God is in control of their hearts. The second set of examples I want us to look at revolves around God taking hold of king's hearts. And now it's to command and to propel his, his will forward. Okay, and all these examples I, I give us now are in the book of Ezra. There's a lot of examples of this very thing in the book of Ezra. And the first is with King Cyrus. God's sovereignty over the, the heart of King Cyrus and the book of Ezra literally opens by showing God's control of a heart. It says in Ezra 1.1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So God stirred up his spirit, talking about this very thing with his heart, leading this, this king who We're told in Isaiah 45, 4 and 5 that he didn't have a relationship with the Lord. He wasn't a believer. He didn't fear God. And yet God takes a hold of his heart, as it says, it stirs his spirit to command and to lead the people of Israel who were in captivity, who were in exilement, to go back and rebuild uh, the temple of God. It didn't serve his own doing, but it ultimately served the purposes of God. This was an act of God on King Cyrus. The other two examples that I'll share is of King Darius. In Ezra 6.22, it says this of him, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. And then it says this, And had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Again, a king who didn't trust in the Lord, but is doing the Lord's work. God is stirring up his heart, working in his heart so that his will is fulfilled. And then 
with King Artaxerxes. In Ezra 7, 27 through 28, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord was my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So again, we see some components of this favor that we saw with Joseph and Daniel and Esther. Uh, in verse 28, it says that God extended to, to Ezra his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. But what I want us to zero in on is what I bolded there in verse 27. It says, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. Putting his commands, putting his will, something that this king wouldn't have normally went with uh, or had any desire to support, God worked in his heart so that he would do so. The third example, set of examples I want to give us is how God can keep people from sin. And I just, I'll mention this one briefly. Um, from Genesis 20, verse 6, we see this with Abimelech. In Abraham's life, uh, we see this in Abimelech's um, Life in Genesis 20, verse 6, it says, Then God said to him, and that's Abimelech, in, a, in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Okay, so the, the background of this is, is Abraham shows up to Abimelech, and uh, he has Sarah, Sarah his, his wife, tell the people that, just his sister, okay? So Abimelech takes her to be his own wife. And here we're told in Genesis 20, verse 6, that God restrains his mind, the, the mind of Abimelech, so that he did not have a physical relationship with Sarah, okay? Protecting her moral purity ultimately for God's promise that God would get, give Abraham offspring. God doesn't intervene through events, in taking Sarah from Abimelech, so he doesn't cause maybe people to, to or maybe another a nation to come in and overtake Abimelech or anything like that, but rather God intervenes by restraining the heart of Abimelech. Something that Abimelech himself, he took her to be his wife, and yet he doesn't have physical relations with her. He probably didn't know what uh, was going on. He didn't understand this, and yet God did not allow him uh, to ultimately have a physical relationship with Sarah. We also see this with the nations surrounding Israel. In Exodus 34, 23 through 24, God keeps them from sin. It says, three times in the year shall all your ma males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. And then here it is. No one shall covet your land when you go up to, to appear before the Lord your God, three times in the year. So not, not only would they not take and capture their land, but it says here that no one will covet. A heart issue, something you think about, your desires. And God is saying that he will work it out within them. He, he has control so that they won't even desire and covet uh, the land of Israel when the males leave. So God can keep people back from sin. Again, a heart issue. The next examples of this involves God overcoming wise counsel and, and works and decisions to fulfill his purposes. The first one I want us to look at is 
with Absalom, the son of David, when he tries to overtake the kingdom. It says this in 2 Samuel 17 through 13 through 14. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And then here we get this phrase, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So what's going on here is Absalom is trying to decide if he's going to go after David or not. If he's going to uh, go after David and those that fled with David or not. And he gets two different words of counsel. One from Ahithophel, his counselor, and one from Hushai. And we see here that it didn't matter what the counsel was. God worked in the hearts and the minds of Absalom and his men to not go with Ahithophel's counsel. Ahithophel, and we didn't read it, but Ahithophel's counsel on a human level really did seem better. It was going right away to overtake David. Um, and Hushai's would have given them plenty of time, or would have given plenty of time for David to recuperate and then be ready for an attack. But we're told that Absalom goes with Hushai's because of God's intervention. Something similar in King Rehoboam's life. Uh, King Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, and, and when he is becoming king, the people come to him with an ultimatum when he becomes king, and, and they say to him, don't work us as hard as your father did. So Rehoboam, he goes and he first speaks to the older counselors, that, the older counselors that uh, counseled his father, and, and they say to him, listen to the people, do what they want. We're told that Rehoboam abandons that advice and he goes to his younger counselors and their counsel is to make things even harder for the people. It doesn't seem to make much sense. But in 1 Kings 12, verse 15, at the end of this account, it says, So the king, meaning Rehoboam, did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. So what we see from Absalom and Rehoboam is that God directed these two leaders against good, wise counsel to fulfill his purposes. God was in control of extremely important decisions in the life of these, these, uh, these men. If Absalom wanted to have the kingdom for himself, if, if King Rehoboam wanted to have the people support him for his, his kingdom to be um, a strong kingdom, God works in these men's decisions, and he shows that he's in control, bringing his will, bringing his decision uh, forward for his purposes. And then the last example I'd like us to consider is that of emotions, okay? God instilling emotions in people. As I said in the beginning, this word heart doesn't only just speak of will or, or desire, but also emotions. Feelings are involved. And we see this in Genesis 35, verse 5. It says, And as they journeyed, a tear from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Okay, God caused the surrounding nations to be scared, to fear so that they didn't attack Jacob and his family. And in the immediate context to this is that Simeon and Levi, the two sons of Jacob, they go in and they kill all of the males in the kingdom of Shechem. And this is what Jacob said to them 
He said, or it says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. This shows why it's an amazing thing what the verse just said uh, that I shared previously, that a terror or a fear or being scared came from God upon these cities. Jacob is a small family, and and they did something that would have been looked at as as abominable, going in and, and killing all of these men, which could have easily made people Maybe scared that they would sneak attack them or, or something like that. But again, this is a small family we're talking about, so nations would look at them and think, we got them. They're outnumbered. But yet we're told in this verse that God holds these nations back by instilling fear, terror within them. They had nothing to fear, and yet they fear because God instilled this in them. So I've had us look at example after example to show us that God certainly is sovereign over men's hearts, that God is in control of our decisions, our views, our feelings, our longings. And with this being the case, maybe the natural question that comes uh, to mind as you think about this is, are we just robots or puppets then? If God's in control of our hearts, the thing that's the most personal and we feel we're in control of, Are we just robots then? Or are we puppets in the hands of God that he is uh, causing us to move and and to do what we do? If God chooses for us, do we not choose decisions? Things like that. If God instills an emotion in us, do we not truly feel it then? And to answer this, and I'll I'll begin by saying simply, no, we're not robots. No, we're not puppets Yes, God has complete control of our hearts, but at the same time with our hearts, what we will to happen and desire to happen truly comes from us. It's it's genuine. It can be attributed to us. How exactly this works is not something that is explained to us in in the Scripture, but we have both of these two things that we see over and over again that God gets the credit, but it it doesn't take the blame away or, or anything away from humans, but The humans get the credit for the decisions and the desires and the emotions as well. Back to Jerry Bridges. He puts this well, and it's an extended quote, but I think it's helpful for us to to understand this. It says that, he says this, Yet the scriptures teach that God does not, or start over, Yet the scriptures teach that God does move a person's will, but in such a way that the person acts freely and voluntarily. Furthermore, sovereignty on a human plane suggests force and coercion, people doing things against their will, wills, as in the subjection of slaves to masters. But the scriptures never portray God's sovereignty in this matter. And then later he says this as well. The Bible teaches both the sovereignty of God and the free moral choices of men with equal emphasis. Richard Fuller, the third president of the Southern Baptist Convention, said, It is impossible for us to reject either of these great truths, and it is equally impossible for our minds to reconcile them. But just as we must not misconstrue God's sovereignty so as to make people mere puppets, so we must not press man's freedom to the point of limiting God's sovereignty. So he shows how both of these things are are communicated in Scripture. That we have God's sovereignty, God's control of our hearts is 
is what we're driving home from this verse, Proverbs 21.1. But at the same time, talking about man's freedom or, or our choices and attributing them to us and our hearts, we don't want to go so far as, as to take away from God's sovereignty. So these are two things that our minds just we can't fully reconcile and understand as human beings. Just want to bring this out. I think several of our examples that, that we already looked at show these two things, but since we're thinking about it, to give us a new, new text, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 16 through 17, I think shows this very well, and it makes these two com- things that look competing but aren't um, clear. It says in 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 17, but thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care I have for you, For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So in verse 16, it shows us the sovereignty of God. It says, but thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care I have for you. So God worked in such a way to instill a great care in Titus for the Corinthians. But then in the very next verse, Titus's part is is highlighted and made clear. Shows it's genuine. It says, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. His own accord. He's not forced. He's not pressured or coerced by God. But Titus genuinely wanted to go to the Corinthians. So we have both of these things. Titus and God. God works in his heart. But at the same time, Titus is genuine. What he wants to do, it's attributed to him. Another familiar example is Pharaoh with his hardening of his heart. Repeatedly, as God sends plagues on Egypt, we're told that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. But who is said to do this varies. It goes between Pharaoh hardening his heart and God hardening his heart. So both are displayed, both are attributed to each other. In Exodus 9, verses 34 through 35, it says, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, He sinned yet again and hardened his heart. It's attributed to Pharaoh for hardening his heart. But a couple verses before that, chapter 9, verse 12, it said, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So we see Pharaoh and God are both said to be at work here in hardening Pharaoh's heart. Something that needs to be clarified, and I'll just mention this very briefly, um, is that we can't say here that God has sinned. Though God is in control, though he holds people back from sin, though he is sovereign over hearts, he doesn't cause us to sin or lead us into sin. As James 1, 13 through 14 talks about leading into sin, temptation, it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So as we think about this and we try to wrap our minds around it, we certainly cannot fault God for our sins, blame God for our sins, saying he caused us to do a sinful act. So we're not robots, we're not puppets, as we think about this this sovereignty of God. So as we think about Proverbs 21.1, I want to move to some application now. What... As we've considered this, and and really I've tried to have us think about this um, in a pretty well-rounded way, now I want us to think about how does this apply to our lives? How is this relevant to us, or what should this 
what type of impact should this make on our day-to-day -day lives? And I have five points of application. The first one is pretty general and simple, but it just says Proverbs 21, one should give us either a renewed or a newfound realization of the will of God. Okay, as I said, this might be something new to you, surprising to you, shocking to you, but I think we've seen the scriptures definitely teach it. But maybe it's just a renewed view. Maybe you think, I knew this. I knew God's in control of all things, but it needs to make an impact upon our lives, that God stands behind even people's decisions, that God is over people's feelings and desires. Second, if you think about it so often in our lives, our, our lives, our careers, our futures seem to be in the hands of someone else. Okay, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a parent, or it's just someone in authority over us. Okay, our, our lives seem to be in their hands. And Proverbs 21.1 destroys such a statement. Our lives, our careers, our futures are not in the hands of others, but they are first and foremost in the hands of God as their lives and their hearts are in the hands of God. Third, when a decision is made that is not in our favor, we may become bitter or upset at, at those making the decision, but this should not be our reaction as ultimately their, their decision towards us is the will of God. Okay, the outcome of people's decisions and choices is the will of God, as he is the one who's sovereignly at work in their hearts. So I think really this verse should cause us to be at peace, okay, rather than be bitter or upset at someone's decision that seems to have negatively impacted us. That decision is in the will of God. Okay? We should be at peace from this verse, even as if it isn't what we hoped for. Okay, we can be comfort, comforted by the fact that God is at work in it. We're often upset by people's decisions or choices because they do not align with what we planned. But ultimately, uh, it's what God has planned that we need to submit to. And Proverbs 21.1 drives us to that. That people's decisions are part of God's will. Fourth, our trust should be in the Lord when it comes to our dealings with other people. Knowing that we are not at the mercy of others, we're, we are to trust and have faith that God can overcome hard hearts. As we saw tonight, God can cause someone to, to favorably view us or positively think about us when there was nothing visible that we would have thought that, that would have been the case. God can cause someone to carry out his will who has no intentions of doing so, someone, even someone who doesn't believe in him. God can change minds. God can change a decision. God can instill feelings and emotions in someone to hold them back from committing an act. God can keep people from sin. God can take people in charge of us, in charge of our country, and cause them to carry out his plans and his purposes. And that leads us to the fifth and the last point of application, and that's when it comes to elections. Okay, when it comes to our government, we looked at Example after example after example of God's sovereignty in the hearts of kings. Our verse says, the king's heart is, in the stream, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. It can be easy to become bent out of shape about certain government officials or become stressed or anxious about the views and beliefs that they hold. But this verse should put our minds at ease knowing that our government officials' hearts are in the hands of the Lord. No decision or law or judgment is outside of his control. 
They are all within it. God reigns over the hearts of kings and presidents and governors and judges. So Proverbs 21.1 again says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And as we close this evening, how will you let this verse impact your life? Will it give you a greater trust in God as you interact with people? Will it give you a different perspective on your boss or your coach? Will, will you view what looked like a disappointing and detrimental choice by someone else as the will of God? And then lastly, will you pray to the Lord for his will to be done through others in your life? Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for verses like this that uh, can really cause us to think uh, and, and go against just some of our natural tendencies and, and ways that we view others. And uh, Lord, as we think about other people's decisions and choices, as we think about people's sins, as we think about people's emotions and how they react, Lord, I pray that you would remind us, that you would ingrain it, ingrain it in our, our hearts and our minds to know that you are in control of even these things. Lord, I just pray that you would help us as we uh, especially deal with authorities in our lives, people that are making choices that uh, impact us or, or people, uh, how they respond to things significantly uh, impacts us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater trust in you, realizing that our, our lives are not in the hands of others, that they are in your hands, just as these people, our authorities, hearts and, and lives are in your hands. Lord, as we think about our government and as we think about maybe views that we just don't agree with or, or even are sinful, Lord, to realize that these people's hearts who are making decisions that impact our country ultimately are in your hands, just like Pharaoh and just like Darius and, and, and Cyrus. Lord, I, I pray that you would just help these examples that we even looked at to be uh, really helpful as we think and compare them to our government officials. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for the peace that we can have knowing that you are behind every single decision, every single choice. People's wills and views are in your hands. And Lord, I pray that we would look to you more and more as we deal with others and as we um, just interact with them. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty and your control over our hearts and over others' hearts as well. In your name I pray. Thank you for joining us this evening, and you are dismissed.